0: And welcome to episode 32 of Fully Scored. I'm your host, Matthew Frost. We've now done as many episodes as Beethoven wrote piano sonatas. And also, 32 is the amount of teeth that the average adult human has in their mouth. A few more facts about 32 for you. 32 is the international call code for Belgium. So any listeners tuned in over there, please feel free to send in some freshly baked chocolate-covered waffles. Mmm. Also, as I'm sure you already knew, 32 is the atomic number of germanium, which, according to Wikipedia, is a lustrous, hard-brittle, greyish-white metalloid in the carbon group, chemically similar to its group neighbours, silicon and tin. Don't worry, though, it's not all heavy metals, orc although we do talk about brass quite a bit. In this episode, we take a trip down under to land named Australia, as we learn more about Robert Redhead's piece, Quintessence, with Canadian staff bandmaster, John Lamb. Before we hear that, though, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our interviewee for today's episode, Gavin Lamplough. Gavin is currently principal cornet of the International Staff Band, as well as bandmaster at a Birmingham Citadel Corps in the UK. He's also a published composer and a schoolteacher by day. Well, thank you ever so much, Gavin, for joining us today on
1: uh, Fully Scored. Are you keeping well? Very well, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, it's great to be on here. Uh, I listen to all of the episodes, and uh, you and the team do a great job. And it's just a great privilege to be here with you today. Oh, thank you,
0: very kind and looking forward to speaking to you today. Are you a fan of podcasts in general?
1: I am, mainly sport ones actually uh, that I listen to, um, but as I say, I've listened to all of the episodes of Fully Scored since you uh, started it and uh, I enjoy it very much. You trying to get brownie points so I'll go easier You're on, on your little questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am a bit worried about the bit later on, it must be
0: said, but uh, no, it, uh, it, it, is, it is great to be here. Excellent stuff. Well, let's start from the beginning, shall we? So first of all, I'd be interested to know what it was that piqued your interest to start playing and making music. Was it the sort of traditional Salvation Army start of having a cornet thrust into your hands at a young age, or was there something else that made you want to pursue it?
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. It may not be the most exciting answer you've ever been given on this podcast, but it was pretty typical of a Salvation Army uh, young lad who was given a a cornet to play uh, purely because my father was the bandmaster at the time in our home corps um, and times were such that he needed to have a a cornet to play on occasion, so it was at home, it was around the house um, and that was the instrument I started on. My paternal grandparents were both salvationists and really fine musicians. My grandfather was a euphonium player and my grandmother um, a fine singer. Um, kind of toured around the territory as a soloist, Um, was even a soloist at the Royal Albert Hall for a bandmaster's councils. So certainly it goes several generations back uh, but my father was a a fine euphonium player and as I say at the time uh, was was bandmaster at our home core. Uh, I guess there were other influences away from the family and away from the army. Uh, I think at my primary school there was a, a music teacher who came and although he didn't give me Um, individual lessons, my father did that. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Granville Jennings who was the soprano player at the Foden's band for many years, Uh, he was the brass peripatetic teacher and he would always say oh why don't you pop in at break time and we'll play some duets. Uh, So I certainly do think of him often as well and the influence that he had Uh, but um, absolutely it was a typical family and Salvation Army upbringing.
0: Fantastic, thank you very much for that. So you grew up in the potteries uh, around Stoke-on-Trent area. What are some of your first memories of the Salvation Army in your younger years?
1: Well, I guess it, it, it was linked back to the family. I mean, there's a picture. Um, I must only be maybe five or six years old with a, a cornet in hand. And in the same photograph, there's my great-grandfather as a cornet player, uh, William Clay. Um, there's my grandfather, William Lamplough, on the euphonium. There's my father, Graham Lamplough, playing a trombone, I think, um, and me playing a cornet. And, and so kind of army music uh, was, in the, was in the home, as I say. Uh, but at the core, uh, at Chesterton, uh, we would um, certainly have a very, we had a very active um, young people's corps at that time. Um, quite a big core with, with a, a thriving junior band. And that was very, very important uh, to me. Um, I also remember, as a youngster, uh, we as a family used to go away to uh, provide weekends uh, at various Salvation Army corps, um, where we do a Saturday night festival and lead the services on a Sunday. Um, and we would we kind of play and sing um, to kind of uh, entertain, but also to to lead worship as well. So I do remember those um, times with fondness. And then I was very fortunate that even as a young boy, a young YP band member, um, probably around the age of seven been invited to go and and be a soloist at various places, Um, and they were just really thinking back. Um, People placing an awful lot of faith in a young lad, but but a great opportunity for me to to go and do things like that that I appreciate now, uh, opportunities that aren't afforded to everyone.
0: Fantastic. So was there a particular moment that you remember that inspired you to take those next steps and uh, think about going into a career in music, was that perhaps the culmination of lots of those different musical highlights, some of which you've mentioned?
1: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I, as I say, I remember as a, as a kid as having a, quite a little community of, of young people who were all keen brass players. I can remember four or five of us most Sundays when the senior band went out to do an open-air meeting, we would raid the senior band cupboard and, and kind of play through some pieces together just for fun. Um, and that ambition was always there. But I think in, in terms of... Um, pursuing a career in music, I can't ever remember wanting to do anything else other than music as a career, Uh, well, other than being a professional footballer, but it became (laughs) pretty clear that wasn't going to happen. And probably the single biggest factor would have been when I attended as an 11-year-old the West Midlands Divisional Summer School, and uh, had the privilege to sit and um, play bumper-up solo cornet to Paul Sharman for a couple of years, that was the first time I'd met Paul and Paul was then as he is now really a, a, a hero to me in many ways in that he was a, a young man who was very humble, very gifted uh, but was studying music at the Royal College of Music at the time and pursuing that career as a professional, professional trumpet player and um, I thought yeah that's something I want to do and someone I want to be like. Fantastic and of course they said the rest is
0: history. You ended up sitting in the same section and currently are sitting in the same section with him in the staff band. That's Funny right. how these things come around. Absolutely. So let's talk about your further studies in music. You went on to study music at Huddersfield University and followed that with a postgraduate degree at the Royal School of Northern Music. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we did. We did actually study other styles of music, not just Northern music. It wasn't uh, all Northern pop bands and the like. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, were those years that affirmed your faith and desire to be a musician in the Salvation Army as well as professionally?
1: Um, they're tough years for youngsters, aren't they? Um, you know, you're away from home for the first time. You're trying to find your place in a rather competitive environment, um, and so I decided to set my stall out, as it were, early. Um, I-, I needed to decide what was important to me. Um, how I wanted people to see me, um, and I, I knew that my faith was was the most important thing, um, and my membership of the Salvation Army and all that goes with it was was a very close second. Um, I kind of uh, never had um, anything but support from my peers uh, and those uh, colleagues that I had at, at university at Music College. Um, and in fact there was a real respect for for what I did and what I believed in. Um, I do believe it to be kind of the best decision I made. Um, Musically I think my time at Music College certainly cemented my desire to be a professional trumpet player. Um, It was there that I had my first serious opportunities to play with a a symphony orchestra and certainly to play uh, first trumpet in serious repertoire like the the Planets or Enigma Variations or something of of that kind of scale. I think about recordings with the RNCM, the the BBC studios, I think about things like the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival. Uh, some incredible players that I met whilst at, at music college, uh, I think it was my first ever brass class and I heard David Thornton play a euphonium like I'd never heard a brass player play before, it was a real eye-opener, um, and some trumpet players that have gone on to have really successful careers, people like Jamie Prophet and uh, Gary Farr. All these opportunities that came to cement my desire to be a professional trumpet player and also to, to prepare me for that next step.
0: So, after leaving your musical education, you spent some time as a freelance musician.
1: Yeah, I did. I was very fortunate. Uh, looking back, it's quite a precarious living to have. Uh, I was very fortunate. There was, there was plenty of work uh, at the time. Um, and I was very pleased to to kind of have that coming my way. Um, a couple of important key figures, I think at Birmingham Citadel, a uh, member of our congregation and at the time a member of the band, Andrew Stone-Fewins, who was a professional trumpet player, um, recently retired. Um, and he had uh, a real gift for looking after, yes, his pupils, but also lads like me, guys from the Corps, Young Salvation Army, musicians who were who were starting out in that career. Uh, so he kind of gave us a a chance at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford, where he uh, was the trumpet player there. Um, obviously, it was an endless stream of auditions, uh, which for me didn't bring about any permanent positions, but did bring about quite a bit of extra work with uh, orchestras like the CBSO in Birmingham and the Liverpool Phil. Uh, so there were great opportunities and, and great years that I, I really value, and they really shaped my musical life uh, very, very much. Um, and it was there, really, that I also grew a passion for teaching. Uh, I taught uh, quite a bit in universities and at the junior department at the Boeing Conservatoire as well. Um, and that really developed a love for, for teaching the next generation of players as well. Excellent. So that leads really nicely onto my next question. and um, I'd be interested to
0: chat with you about your transition into full-time teaching. When and perhaps why did you make the choice to go into full-time teaching and what were the sort of driving factors from perhaps putting that freelance career to bed for a little bit and going into teaching?
1: Well, I realised um, that there were a couple of things that were, were bugging me, I guess. Um, one was um, my wife and I had uh, just had our first child um, and I was fearful that I seemed to be spending more time away uh, than I was there. And I didn't want to miss out on that huge privilege that is uh, uh, parenthood. Um, I was also very aware that it was getting harder and harder to commit to things here at uh, Birmingham, uh, but also just generally Salvation Army music making which was very very important to me. Um, And I realised I probably didn't need to give up playing the trumpet, Uh, I didn't need to give up being a professional musician, but actually I may be able to tweak things slightly and and take on uh, a full-time teaching role which I was very very interested in. My father had been a uh, head of music in a, in a school for for many decades um, and I looked on uh, with great fondness and seen how he did things I thought that looked like a very exciting career to have but I could still in the evenings and at weekends still pursue a freelance career of sorts um, and whilst there would need to be some sacrifices in that regard um, it could still be something which I could combine quite nicely um, so I decided to do that and it was with the help of, of some friends who kind of got me Uh, the opportunity to train on the job um, and to uh, go into a school um, and to to get the qualifications that were needed to to become a full-time teacher. Fantastic.
0: So you're currently the Head of Music at Stafford Grammar School and lead an incredibly active music department with approximately 65% of the school receiving instrumental lessons every week. Presumably this takes a lot of hard work to
1: cultivate such a musical culture in school how have you gone about achieving this? Well, uh, there's two influences really. One is my father. Um, I saw the way he did it and it worked very well for him in a state school. So it should work quite well for me in, in an independent school uh, with um, a little bit more freedom um, in, in the way in which we do things. Um, and the other is, I, I just basically to set up a very salvation army model uh I formed a, a junior band and a senior band and 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 gave them performance opportunities um, because I think that was very very important I inherited a music department which which had some children who were having lessons but there was no real output for them there was there was no end game and it's all very well kicking a ball against a wall but actually if you're not going to play a game with other people then it it, it makes it quite dull Um, and so I realised that what these children really needed was was performance opportunities so we we set about uh, forming groups and finding the the kind of rigor of um, ensemble playing um, and choral singing as well which is also an important part of it Um, trying to expose them to as many different musical styles as possible um, Exciting opportunities, foreign tours, CD recordings. As I say, lots of different concerts and different settings, um, and the rest it kind of takes care of itself. Um, anyone who tries to tell me that children aren't interested in playing uh, musical instruments, um, well, it's it's from my angle anyway. It, it just seems an absolute nonsense because we know that if it's something um, that is worth investing in, that, that young people will and certainly. Where I am at the moment, um, the, the children really invest in a big way, as do the parents and the other staff uh, around the school. Everyone really buys into this team ethos that exists within our music department.
0: Informally, you've been a YP band leader as well. Do you think your uh, experience with leading a YP band and the school band have complemented each other?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and also been involved with other kind of youth band settings. I think it's, um, it's very important to, to know the group and to be able to um, find the right level uh, that you need to work at. Because if your expectations are too high musically, um, you know, if you're pitching the music too hard, or even the way in which you're communicating it through the course of a rehearsal, um, you know, the, the instruction that you're giving to the youngsters, you, you, know, you, you have very little chance of seeing them really flourish. So it is really important to get alongside them, to choose the right kind of repertoire, and to always, always, always encourage. That is the most important thing. Because if they are encouraged, then they'll come back the next day and they'll want to learn a little bit more.
0: Fantastic, thank you for that wise advice. Now we're recording this interview at Birmingham Citadel Salvation Army uh, on a band practice night, before band practice starts. Mm. I'm just thinking if I give you two harder questions, I'm gonna get it in the neck all night. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. You've been a bandmaster now for over 10 years here as well, and continuing the legacy of your father before you.
1: Yeah, Dad was my hero in many ways, but um, certainly a huge influence on my leadership. Um, And he made me realise that successful leadership is not about me, it's not about the individual, it's not about the leader, Um, it's about empowering others. Um, and that's something which uh, which we certainly have, have tried to do and to continue, as you say, that legacy which which Dad uh, set. And indeed, um, bandmasters before him as well.
0: Now, I didn't actually quite realise till I was writing these questions, but next year I'll be part of the band here in Birmingham for ten years, which is wow. really quite scary. <laughs> uh, and I feel like, throughout that time, we've got quite a good knowledge of the repertoire the band has played over the years. And I have to say, there's always been a bit of something for everybody. Um, and the band will always try, it, ha- try its hand at so many different styles of music across many eras. How important is it to you that a band can access this broad scope of repertoire? And how do you
1: go about putting a programme
0: together that is as inclusive as possible?
1: Yeah, I, again, it's, it's not about me. Um, you know, it's, it's not about the music that I enjoy. Um, I would say a large percentage of the music isn't necessarily my, my go-to style um, it, it's about other people um, and it's also important to remember I think that you won't please everyone all the time, <laughs> that's an important lesson to uh, to, to learn quite quickly. Um, but in terms of repertoire it's about choosing music that suits the taste of others, others in the band and of course those that, that we play to uh, in audiences and congregations. Um, and, and I guess that's where it may end for most groups. Uh, but for Salvation Army groups, I guess the reason why we do what we do is, is the ministry. And so it's really important that the repertoire choices enhance uh, that ministry. Um, without becoming too one-dimensional, it would be very easy for us to play, um, from our huge back catalogue of devotional pieces, uh, reflective number after reflective number, which all um, really... Kind of portray our faith very very well. Um, we do need the contrast, and we do need to understand that our ministry is wide and varied, and and so our repertoire of choices should kind of reflect uh, that. Um, we can't be afraid to take risks, um, and I think and, and kind of think out of the box. I think that's important. Um, but I would also say that standards are important, and they're particularly important if faith is our motivation to do what we do so repertoire to suit your players um, as well as music to develop their ability I think is very very important when choosing repertoire.
0: Fantastic, thank you for that insight, really interesting to hear. Now here's a tricky question for you, what's your vision
1: for the band going forward in the future? Hmm. Um, To be better uh, now that might sound like quite a strange thing to say, but but I do want our band to be better, better musicians, certainly. That our ministry may be better and more effective. Uh, that the fellowship and and the kind of um, the love which is shown to each other would continue to 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 bond. We would continue to bond. We continue to develop. We continue to be better. Um, better programming and better opportunities for, for ministry, not that we haven't had good programming, good opportunities in the past, of course we have had all of these things, but but we must constantly look to evolve and to improve and to move forwards, um, that, that we would want to be better disciples um, through what we're doing, reflecting our faith through what we're doing and, and being open to um, our calling and, and being able to find new and relevant ways to, to portray uh, the gospel through our music, and um, interestingly as you will know our band motto is the best is yet to be so really that needs to be at the forefront i I think it's a great motto because it doesn't just refer to the music which some perhaps do interpret that it it refers to every aspect Um, and that is modeled not just in our senior band but of course by a really thriving junior band which we have and um, the guys that work with that, including yourself, Matthew, just do a fabulous job and I want to see those kids coming through into something which they really want to be part of.
0: Awesome. Well thank you so much, some really wise words there indeed I think for any Salvation Army brass band around the world. Let's chat now shall we about the ISB for a bit. How long have you been part of the
1: ISB for now? Um, I think it's it's at least a decade, I think maybe just over now. So. Um, It's been a it's been a a great privilege to be part of of the band uh, for that time, and uh, to to kind of serve in that band with some just stunning musicians, but also really fabulous uh, Christian colleague musicians.
0: Can you remember what your first ever uh, occasion was with the band?
1: I can. Yeah, Um, I had a phone call from Kevin Ashman, who was the principal cornet at the time, to ask if I'd cover on soprano. my inside my answer was no how can anyone <laughs> follow the the great gary Fountain who in my opinion is the finest soprano cornet player anywhere in the world mm. um but uh the word that came out of my mouth was yes kevin of course i'll be there <laughs> uh, and it was a weekend away at uh leeds um i think it was leeds west Hunslet, and um we uh We had a great weekend there and um, it was just a great privilege, huge privilege to be part of the band and then that kind of led to a couple of other things where I was uh, guesting with the band, Um, there was a CD recording for the Heritage series uh, that was on Solar Cornet Um, and due to the ill health um, on the Saturday morning of Carl Nielsen, the bandmaster asked if I would step up to the number two chair for the recording and then... Just slipped in there that there was going to be a cornet feature I need to play as well on the recording, so it's a bit of a baptism of fire. Uh, but the season that followed in the September, I was appointed to the band, and um, and yeah, it's it, it's a great privilege. There is a regret, um, and that's the regret that that neither of my parents ever saw uh, or heard me play with the band, and and that is tinged with sadness perhaps. But it is the greatest privilege to be part of such a, a special group. I'm sure there'd be.
0: So incredibly proud of you now, especially being the principal cornet of the band. How much of a different experience is it, sitting in that hot seat, principal cornet, in comparison to all the years as part of the solo cornet section?
1: Well, it's just a tad more pressure (laughs) (laughs) of that, there's no doubt. Uh, But it was actually your podcast was one of the things very early on that really, um, really helped at the very, very beginning when I got asked to take on the role, and before it all started, uh, the inevitable anxieties of whether I'd live up to the expectation existed. And it was the podcast that you did with, um, with Dorothy Gates. Um, and I think she said something along the lines of, um, my legacy uh, will not be someone else's legacy, or, or something along those lines. Um, and that was I, was, I can remember where I was. I was, I was running and listening to it in, in my ears, which is often where I listen to your podcasts. Um, and it really made me literally stop in my tracks. Um, and I thought yeah that's it uh, there is a pressure absolutely it is different in many many ways but but actually um, this is for me to to make my own mark on things this it, it, in theory the, uh, the the pressure comes from thinking we've got to do this on our own but we, we really don't um, I'm blessed with a fabulous team of cornet players um, present company included. Um, a really brilliant and experienced bandmaster to, to kind of guide us all um, through. Um, and the most supportive band really that you could wish wish for. Um, and, and the messages of encouragement that have come through over the last uh, 12 months or so have, have been such an encouragement uh, to help me to settle into it. So yeah, I'm left very much with the opinion of let's do this and see, see what happens.
0: Absolutely and it does sound really superb. You mentioned that you were running when listening to the podcast. Mm. Sorry to hear that. Who were you running from? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. So another part of your musical life that I'd like to touch upon is your composition. Uh, And recently we've seen your name popping up on the top right-hand corner of some pieces of music that have been published, and uh, hopefully will continue to do so. Has it always been an interest of yours, composition?
1: Yeah, very much so, actually. Um, My father was just a a really brilliant all-round musician and a a really good writer and arranger. Um, But I think that throughout my life most of my arrangements probably haven't been performed more than a handful of times because they've been made for specific reasons. I'm one of those people who who writes or probably preferably arranges uh, better when I've got a specific purpose, a specific commission if you like, uh, to write for. But the very nature of writing like that means that it almost becomes too bespoke, um, and perhaps doesn't generate the the widespread appeal. Um, so it's 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 rare that I have the time to to write just for the sake of writing. Uh, my day job obviously involves quite a bit of composing and arranging as well as director music in a school that teaches GCSE and A level. Uh, composition is a huge part of that, um, and so yeah, I'm teaching composition most days. Um, I don't profess to be the most gifted of arrangers but, but I think with having a good knowledge of what it's like being on the other side of the music stand I think gives you perhaps um, an insight into composition that can be quite helpful at times to write nice pragmatic parts. Oh, good word that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for
0: that. So overarching all the musical aspects of your life and all the musical experiences that you've had in your life so far what role has your faith had in making you who you are today?
1: Yeah, my faith is central to everything I do. Um, I've been brought up in a Christian family, it was um, obviously there from my earliest memories, and it's still there to shape my decisions today. Um, it's not just that I'm a Christian when I'm with the Salvation Army, whether that's in a musical sense or, or any other. Um, I'm a Christian in all aspects of my life, uh, including music. Um, but also equally, I don't know, at the football or whatever it might be. It certainly doesn't make me perfect in any way, shape or form. Um, And it doesn't mean that the things that I do perhaps are liked by everyone, Uh, but it does mean that everything that I do uh, is done with prayerful consideration and that um, it's certainly always my ambition and my desire to to keep God at the centre of of my decision-making day in, day out. So, uh, yeah, Certainly my faith has shaped a lot of who I am and what I choose to do uh, in my day-to-day life. and thank
0: you very much for your openness there. So, it's now time for the quirky quick-fire questions, and I can see you tensing up and looking anxious (laughs) already. (laughs) So, first of all, who is your favourite Salvationist composer?
1: I think that would be Ray Stedman-Allen. You sure about that? You said you think. Well, there's so (laughs) many greats, but yeah, I I would say RSA.
0: Excellent. And even more specific now, have you got a favourite Salvation
1: Army band piece of music? Now, that is tricky. Purely because of the way in which I have seen it shape so many lives, I would say it's the light of the world. Great. Thank you very much.
0: What's your favourite football formation? Um, Oh, Solid 442. Excellent, yeah. I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. <laughs> Have you got a favourite Beatles album? I do, uh, Sgt Peppers. Nice, classic. Mm. Now, if you could host a paper airplane throwing competition in any football stadium worldwide, which one would you choose?
1: It's got to be Wembley Stadium, hasn't it? National Stadium, yeah. Okay, great.
0: Have you got a favourite book of the Bible?
1: I would say Psalms, I
0: think, yeah. Excellent stuff. If you had a jetpack that could take you to anywhere in the world in 20 minutes, where would you
1: jet off to first? It would definitely be somewhere in America, and I would say I would like to go to New York. Excellent stuff, sounds great. If you could eradicate any sport from history, what sport would it be? <laughs> Sorry to all my American friends, it would be baseball. I um, know I didn't really enjoy it. it, it takes a long time, it's like cricket, but I didn't get it. <laughs> it's just glorified rounders, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to lose a lot of
0: listeners. You will. <laughs> um, what is your favourite farmyard animal sound? <sniffs> nice. <laughs> now, picture this. you got your mate, Gordon Ramsay, coming round for tea. What
1: dish do you cook to impress him?
2: <laughs> My favourite
1: dish is paying for Chinese takeaway, so I guess it would be cheese on toast, although I would definitely call it Welsh rarebit. Ooh, very nice. What is the most unusual food you've ever sampled? (laughs) Probably that that vegan sandwich I had last night on the way back from Staff (laughs) ban. It did look interesting, didn't
0: it? (coughs) Thank you to Starbucks. (laughs) Right, uh, what was the last TV series that you watched?
1: love the blacklist and we're watching the latest series of that at the moment
0: nice excellent and you've got me hooked on it as well very good <laughs> what uk prime minister do you think would make the best formula 1 driver
1: oh my goodness margaret thatcher she was very strong-willed and went out on her own yeah absolutely and, and what formula 1 team do you think she'd
0: race for <laughs> red bull <I> don't know. <laughs> well you had it here first <laughs> Great. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, Gavin. We look forward to hearing from you later in the episode when we put your mind to the test in Bandmaster Mind. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Gavin, for your time, good humour and words. Great to hear more of an insight into your life and your faith. Now it's time for our analysis with Canadian staff bandmaster John Lamb as he talks about Robert Redhead's Quintessence. Well, John, thank you ever so much for joining us once again, your second appearance on Fully Schooled.
3: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: And in today's analysis, we're going to be having a look at a real iconic piece of Salvation Army repertoire, Quintessence, written by Robert Redhead. Listeners may be interested to know that the excerpts used in this analysis are taken from the Enfield Collection, recording by Enfield Citadel Band. So I've just got a few contextual questions for you before we delve into the music of this piece. Could you tell us a little bit about when this piece was written and uh, what it was written for?
3: Uh, It was uh, written for the Melbourne Staff Band's 1978 tour of the United Kingdom and the Salvation Army's International Congress in London.
0: Fantastic. And how about yourself? When did you first come in contact with this piece of music?
3: Uh, When I um, came to the Salvation Army in the mid-70s, then later on... um, discovered uh, the Canadian staff band, started buying records. This was on one of the, the, uh, the LPs that, uh, that I bought. And then um, in, the, in the concerts that I was able to attend uh, as a teenager, I, I heard the band play this on a number of occasions. And I think they used it quite a bit leading up to their tour of Australia in the, in the 80s.
0: So I believe you worked with Robert Redhead in preparing this piece with the Canadian staff band.
3: Yeah, several years ago, he was a guest conductor for one of our um, uh, anniversary weekends. And I think that was the last time we got to work with Robert. So I I had the privilege of preparing uh, the the band for him to conduct. And uh, I think that's also the last time I heard it live. Uh, Other than that, uh, my experience with it uh, would be when I played it uh, many times uh, when I was on bass trombone many years ago. Fantastic stuff.
0: an Excellent piece. And let's talk about what makes it such an excellent piece. Let's delve into the score. As ever, listeners can always find the score on the Salvation Army Music Index if they wish to follow along at home. So, John, could you talk us
3: through this opening section, first of all? Well, in in, uh, looking at the opening, I I went to the uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary to look up quintessence, um, because there's always reasons for the titles. And a couple of them struck me here, the fifth and highest element in an ancient and medieval philosophy that permeates all nature and is the substance composing celestial bodies. That's quite a mouthful there. But uh, I look at that the fifth and the highest element and another definition right beneath it in the dictionary is the essence of a thing in its purest and most concentrated form. And I think that's maybe more what Robert was getting at, but when I look at the opening and, uh, we can just uh, think of this as coincidence and then maybe 10 years from now, it'll be a fact. But it, it strikes me that the, um, the first six bars uh, are an extended uh, five chord, finally a five seven resolving to uh, a one chord at bar seven. And it's, that's the fifth, as in the fifth element. And the first interval in what I think is kind of a medieval statement of original thematic material is also the first interval is a fifth probably coincidence but those are the things you notice um and it has that kind of medieval feel to it i think um in, in the these first bars um uh, with, with a couple of statements in it and it's very uh, magnificent and and one of the things i like about robert's writing is um traditional harmonies are at the base of everything he does but he's never afraid to to use lots of color chords and open chords and that's something that um uh, mentioned was inspired by Brian Bowen Uh, and I think it's just a bold statement of original uh motive I think or motif uh that is one of the unifying elements that recurs through the piece to help it uh become what it is and 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 becomes a satisfying performance.
0: And could you talk a little bit about what the narrative of the piece is doing here in the opening?
3: Well I think the uh the opening is um you can look at different score notes and people's notes on this. Uh, you know, you think of that almost medieval sounding um, fanfarish type motive there. And it may be a reference to the immensity, immensity of the, the Australian continent, the vastness of the territory. Um, and that's, that's probably the truth.
0: I don't know how true this is, but I've heard one theory that this opening is meant to be describing the rumblings of a helicopter engine starting up and whirring around before we take off and uh, see the vast Australian landscape. Is that something that you've heard before?
3: That would be, I could see that when you look at the triplet figures starting in the euphonium then into the baritone and the horn finally into the cornets, Um, Like I said, he's not afraid to to use color and effects. There's lots of effects that are favorites of Robertson. This is one of them. And I've seen this recur in other pieces of his um, where there's a sense of excitement created by the rhythmic activity in the triplets and a sense of mystery and evolution. Uh, Not sure I see the helicopter, but like I said, why not?
0: excellent stuff so at section seven we have this vast tune that permeates the whole piece in its first exposition here
3: arrive on that one chord and we have that interval of fifth and eventually uh, going up to the octave and that's i think that's that just that medieval type statement um of establishment um and a sense of um magnificence and and sets the listener up for the story it's almost like a a fanfare leading to an overture to a a good theater presentation where you're we're going to settle in now and we're going to hear something and i i think that uh it, it gets restated again at uh, 15 before it settles down. And the story starts uh, at, at 31. I like how he at 24, again, using his open chords in the low brass from the first baritone down and then leaves the upper half of the band to make a really bold statement of that theme so that the listener really by that point can't, can't forget it there. And, and just the underlying harmonies are just rock solid. And so it is fully established now as a theme that you're going to be hearing throughout the piece and again at the end.
0: Fantastic. So that takes us through to 31 and on the score here got noted um a little note at the top of the music australians all let us rejoice and in brackets advance australia fair what's going on here
3: well that's the australian national anthem did a little reading on it i'm not going to recite it for you uh because i think they've changed some of the words recently um and this is uh the presentation uh and appealing to to nationalism here and with a sense of um Revere, and then excitement when you see all the the uh, activity in the semi quavers in the cornets. Um, and this is—I was actually noticing more after I prepared notes for this how often he brings this this first statement from the Australian na- national anthem back, whether it's in one of the middle parts in the horns, baritones, or on a xylophone, right through in some of the most sensitive bits. Um, what this does is remind everybody. this piece was written for this is about the australian salvation army and it is relentless where he just drops this in two bars at a time um and i'm starting to notice more more quotes of it as i as i become more uh, acquainted with this score
0: fantastic and uh we then have a key change at bar 42.
3: so yeah now we're in, in concert c and we have the first salvation army tune introduced in the form of the glory hallelujah portion from the christian mission also in a very brief uh, but energetic accented call and response at first between various sections kind of shouting it out to each other between cornets trombones and stuff like that and just trying to get it off the ground and again like the opening motif it evolves and then becomes established um, uh, where it's presented over basically a a more established harmonic rhythm and again, with a ending with a, a, a trombone a euphonium reference to that opening motif. Again, kind of bringing in previous elements to give the work unity all the way through.
0: Excellent. And what can you tell us about the tune that is used? Glory, glory, glory,
3: hallelujah. Um, I can tell you that it's really hard to find the composer because it's anonymous. There's an arrangement by Ray Stevan Allen and um, recorded by anybody up to the King's Singers. And, and it'd be what you would really call a classic uh, Salvation Army a song from, uh, from the origin when the Salvation Army was first called The Christian Mission. And, um, and we still uh, like to bring it out every once in a while in our core and sing it through. Mainly, glory, hallelujah, hallelujah, and, and just one of those praise meeting types of uh, inspiring choruses. Uh, and and it, it, it exudes joy in, in our faith and in our mission. And I think that's, um, that's important to how the, uh, the army is trying to establish itself in Australia at this time.
0: Fantastic. So in some ways, next musical chapter comes at bar 52, entitled The City. Could you talk us through what the narrative is here and how the music displays that?
3: Well, um, so the Salvation Army first established in the city, according to this narrative, and uh, it brings, in the music, it brings all three thematic elements into a kind of a frenetic portrayal of Australia's vibrant cities. And we're now in Concert F, and the, the Cornet Choir is assigned a rhythmic variation of Glory Hallelujah, with the horns eventually bringing back fragments of "Advance Australia Fair, the National Anthem, and then the trombones and baritones bring back a two-bar reference to the opening motif to close off this movement. And just in the preparation of this, just notice the underpinning rhythmic drive uh, provided by snare and wood uh, woodblock here. This is a redhead favorite. Uh, trading off of 16th note passages, semi quavers, um, <laughs> closely, closely matching the cornet choir. I think this speaks to just... Um, the kind of frenetic nature, the enthusiasm, the trying to get this thing off the ground uh, in, in the context of the city, and um, and there's a vibrance and an excitement all around this. That's that's what I'm hearing in the music at that time. Still struggling to become the whole tune.
0: Very exciting music indeed. At 74 we take a, a movement out of the city and into the countryside as this part of the music is entitled.
3: What's going on here? Um, you're at this point in the country we kind of we have an idyllic portrayal of Australia's countryside. We're now in a nice calming key of uh, concert B flat uh, and again actually at this point was fairly thin scoring and I find it, um, I'd have to take a closer look to see if he's using, um, you know, inversion of of some of the the thematic material uh, because the references are harder to find until it actually gets up to the solo cornet section uh, just around bar 83 there. Uh, But it's a good um, diversion. I mean, everybody loves to leave the city and get into the country for a little bit of respite. And I think musically he provides that opportunity and, and still brings these themes and the Salvation Army really as part of the narrative to the countryside. And it, it's very idyllic and, and a nice elegant cadence uh, at the end with a kind of a wistful, wistful uh, scale degree, two to one uh, resolution there on the final note. And it's, it's just a nice moment of repose, uh, which musically pro- programmatically represents the countryside and the Salvation Army in it.
0: Fantastic. And a passing note for any solo cornet players, two bars before 91, first note should be a D flat, uh, but written as a D natural There, One of the very, very few errors in any SPNS scores.
3: Is this where I show my age and say, well, I read it in manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate when guys said that. Now I'm one of them. I don't know when that happened. Yeah,
0: when is that change? It'd be interesting to know what like, year that takes place. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. So, 91, we venture into the Outback. Can't get much more Australian than that for a title of a section.
3: No. Nope. What's going on here? Um, this would be, from a bandmaster's point of view, <clears throat> the maybe the toughest section to prepare. When you consider that, unless I'm wrong, It was less than 10 years before that, that army bands started to experiment with uneven times, like seven, eight, five, eight, and things like that. Now you've got a section that is nothing but that. And my interpretation of this, again, the the whole point of evolution, now we're taking the Salvation Army and the faith to the outback. And it's it's tough to get it going. So he's using seven, eight time. And as a side note here for percussionists or for band leaders, if you're going to program a lot of redhead music, you may as well get a good set of wood blocks and temple blocks right now. Make sure they sound great because he uses them in so many pieces because he loves it. Uh, so here we are. That uh, that is the rhythmic ostinato setting things up at 91, and then we have this uh, reference uh, to um, to the tune in a in a kind of uneven thing with these three eight uh intrusions which i wish i had asked him about what those really meant and this whole section from 91 um with all kinds of little interjections and an unevenness and stuff like that leads us to 111 now you can prepare a band from 91 to 111 pretty well if they can internalize that seven eight time and, and really own it and then you can let them play it uh, and then at 111, we get the Sheep Shearer's song, uh, a traditional Australian song from the outback. And I have the words here, and I'm not going to read them because it might not be appropriate. But we, uh, we have the tune uh, that, that we use with that. So he's really doing literally a play on words here. And part of the humor in this is while the entire band at 111 is taking through a a grouping of three and two and two for the seven, eight. The solo cornet is playing in reverse of that. So uh, resign yourself now to just conduct the ostinato and leave the solo cornet on his own, figure it out. Uh, Bar two and four, it's always gonna be that eighth note to get to the next bar. And so it, uh, it really has to uh, be one of those well-prepared things where the musicians have to really, really own it for it to be successful and to be confident in, in all the entries and really know the music.
0: But I love the little note on the score where it says, it is suggested that the conductor ignores soloist and vice versa. Probably don't see that often.
3: <laughs> is, is that is that a note from somebody who is a previous conductor on the score, or it's, it's in there? It's printed it at the bottom of the page. I concur. I conduct the ostinato, and the solo cornet is on their own. And another thing that you
0: don't see often is a scoring for a swanny whistle in the percussion section.
3: Is that what you call it? A swanny whistle? We, we call it a slide whistle. And that, that's another thing I wish I could ask him about that particular effect. I mean, we all know that he loves to use temple blocks. We all know that he loves to write in two, two, three, two, four, two time. This I didn't see coming. And um, yes, the, we call it a slide whistle. And I, I'm sure there's been. They should have just given it to the trombones. That, that's my personal feeling. This is the army trying to to uh, to evolve here. And then at 119, the entire cornet section joins in that in that tune with uh, lots of rhythmic, typical redhead support, lots of uh, triplet action in the horns um, at 119 uh, where you get a little bit uh, more confident rendition uh, of the theme there. And then that, that leads us to uh, to 128 where, and I've seen it in some score notes, 128 through to the, the next uh, slow section represents the army is now established. We 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 started in the city. Uh, we're out in the country. It's beautiful. The outback might have been a challenge. We can hear that in the seven eight time and the awkwardness of it. Uh, but at one twenty eight, there's a confidence and an anticipation building.
0: we have the first iteration of the tune, At Thy Feet I Bow Adoring, a really stunning tune. Could you first of all, tell us a little bit about that melody and the words associated with it, please?
3: Um, I think the tune was written by a couple of Australians, unless my sources are wrong, um, but this is, the piece up until now has been about excitement. It's been about evolution, maybe a little bit of struggle, um, a lot of excitement. Um, you know, the, the character uh, of, of the Australian people, the busyness of the Salvation Army, the mission. And here, um, I think it's now time to settle in to, to establish the actual sacrifice that it takes to do this work and, and to be a follower of Christ. And um, so here we are, we're in concert after we're in three, four time. And the horns followed by the trombones present the words at thy feet I bow, adoring, bending, lower, lower still, giving up my all to follow just to do my master's will. Um, I'm just going to give a little aside here. Um, I was privileged to have uh, back in 2016 a lot of time with Robert. Uh, he was on our bus when we were um, in, in on the West Coast for an event out there. And... I think when I was younger, and even a younger bandmaster, we revered him so much that he was almost unapproachable. And uh, it turns out he's one of the most approachable people ever, even with a really great sense of humor, Uh, but not afraid to talk about some of the more difficult, difficult things. And I am projecting this on him a little bit from a conversation where he told me that it was never his intent to be in music ministry as part of his officership. And he, he arrived at a point where he decided to go into the work. And he said, I played all the big pieces, I played in the ISB, I really enjoyed it, uh, but I put my instrument in the cupboard and I was off to training college and I was going to be a pastor. And we all know that that wasn't God's plan for him. And uh, even on the humorous side, I mean, we, we would look at him and say, wow, after nine years, how sad is that that you had to give up the Canadian staff band and take an appointment? Um, on the west coast and he said John there's a picture of me handing the baton over to Brian Burdett uh, at the end of that nine years he's that smile is genuine I, I desperately wanted to, to carry on you know as a pastor and music would always be part of my ministry but that is what I felt called to do and I think his choice of this this tune and these words in 1978 giving up my all to follow just to do my master's will. It was his master's will that he would be a musician and affect all of our lives with such powerful music. And I think that was a sacrifice for him because I don't think it was his will that he would do that. when you look at the accompaniment of this it's it's based as much on color as it is on harmony and it, absolutely the accompaniment has to be subservient to the singularity of this melody because it, it, it's very haunting and very challenging so the cascading figures unfolding in the coronets, they provide such an elegant and transparent backdrop for a for a tune that i think in this setting struggles to resolve the last word giving up my all to follow just to do my master's will And while it does resolve, it always resolves quietly and it's hesitant, not as hesitant as in um, uh, Les Condon's piece, um, The Present Age, where there's a full stop. It's not as dramatic as that, but there is a hesitation in that final statement, giving up my all to follow, to do my master's will. And so I think this section, if if you're preparing this for a band, this requires deep knowledge of the words. Um, It's a one verse song. Uh, It is what it is. And, and the musicians have to have a well-developed musical maturity in order to have its full effect on both the performer and the audience. And uh, so aside from that, what makes this so effective? Because the piece has been so exciting and fully, uh, full of rhythmic activity and call and response and unevenness and everything like that. This is a real uh, interruption to that with something very, very uh, pristine and and challenging um and uh from a faith point of view as well as a musical point of view so this is one of the most powerful uh, i won't call it a middle movement because it's not it's a moment um where, where he's forcing us to really think about why why are we doing all this the Salvation army is a worldwide organization but every once in a while we need to sit down and and face these words and i find it a personal challenge i I don't know if i meet the moment every day where i'm giving up all my all to follow my master's will so um i've always been deeply moved by this and um so i hope listeners are as well as as they get exposed to this hopefully into the future
0: thank you and thank you for that challenge as well for us all so 178, we have just three bars that transition us from the calm and the serenity we you've just been speaking about back into vivace a e scintillante.
3: Scintillating and move it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At 181, we're, we're collecting our things here. We've got all the themes. Uh, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah again in the euphonium, moving at a tempo of 176. Uh, a couple of repeated sections here. Um, again, lots of uh, frenetic rhythmic activity, more call and response at, at 197, repeats back. It's kind of like charging it up and getting it off the ground. And um, building into uh, 203, we have the little grace notes in the soprano and solo cornet, just another little variation on the tune there, having a bit more fun with it. Uh, a little bit of scale fireworks in, in some of the baritone and horn parts. Um, and then uh, leading to uh, more call and response, five, six bars before 2.14. Uh, Any listener who's been um, taken in by a band piece like this and many others, they know what's happening here. You know the tune is coming back, and it works every single time. Redhead, nine times out of ten, is going to put it in 3-2 time and bring the tune back in, in an augmented fashion with quotes from other tunes above the top. So this whole section here is kind of like packing up. or getting on the bus. We're taking this thing to the final stretch. Here it comes. So now we're back in concert D flat, and we have this very triumphant recapitulation of my master's will. And this time, if you look at how the tune rolls out, and again, almost in a Vaughn Williams-esque type of way, because now we're in 3-2 time where you can augment the tune and still be able build in between percussion and chorus. Lots of rhythmic activity to uh, to give it a sense of contrast and bring the other tunes into it, just as a reminder, because that is the unifying element. He, he always uses all of the, the, the themes that he's presented. Um, what strikes me in this one... Uh, The tune is proclaimed by the trombones, upper horns, and then back row cornets in augmentations. That's actually a very powerful choir uh, voiced within the band. Nobody's going to have to force that. It's just going to roll out in in an overwhelming way. Uh, At 2.36, it strikes me that the cornets take over here, my master's will, and brilliantly presenting, giving up my all to follow. I think that's very poignant that, Those are the words they're presenting at that point, and you can't miss it. It's in a different range, and it is played with absolute resolve and passion. There's no hesitation. There's no thinking about it here. So we've established that now, that this is the sacrifice in in our our life as as a Christian and as a salvationist. We have to deny ourselves and giving up our all to follow. Um, and so that, that statement is very powerful to me, and I think it's very powerful to listeners, uh, accompanied by lots of fireworks underneath, and, and, and triumphant stuff, unified uh, from the flugel down to the second baritone, and the euphoniums, that choir there, and uh, with some exciting syncopation underneath it, and again, the block chords and the basses. <laughs>
0: some symmetry here in the music because we hear a very similar sounding idea to the opening coming back again.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely and you'll notice also the open chords. I, I think that's something uh, Redhead joked with me about um, there were things back in the day that weren't allowed to be written in case a piece sounded too rhapsodic or something like that and it was uh, when Brian Bowen uh, wrote that famous open chord near the end of My Comfort and Strength." That was, he said that was permission for him to use the the same effect. And here it is even just from baritones down to the tubas, but we all know from Corpus Christi he's obviously used the whole band and voicing things like that. And and again, other than the the snare drum um, activity underneath it, this is very expansive. You got the top half of the band with the original uh, thematic material, block chords, again, representing establishment, and then out to, in the third and last bar, a final quote of the Australian National Anthem, and then a, a percussion break, and, and then a, a final open chord, just to uh, give it a brilliant finish.
0: amazing music. And thank you ever so much, John, for sharing that analysis and for all of your work preparing that for us.
3: It's actually been a little bit of an emotional and spiritual journey uh, to revisit it maybe in more depth. Uh, So thanks for giving me this opportunity. And I hope I've provided some useful insights for anybody uh, planning to program in the future. Absolutely.
0: And thank you once again for your time and preparation. Thanks, John, for all your time preparing that fascinating insight into a superb composition and the message that accompanies it. If you usually make it to the end of the podcast, you'll have heard the name of our Arid Island guest today many times. He's someone that's absolutely crucial to making this podcast possible due to all the time he puts in editing and producing it. However, up until this point, we've never heard his voice. Well, on this podcast, anyway. But that's all about to change as we welcome Simon Gash on Arid Island Album. Don't forget your sun cream. Well Simon, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Certainly a name that we've heard
2: many times in the podcast, but not a voice that we've heard many times, so it's Great to hear from you today. Thank you, Matthew. I've been doing my best to put this off as long as I can, and I don't feel I can put you off any longer.
0: I'll keep pestering you until you gave in, so thank you for that. (laughs) So let's get to know you a little bit first. So you work in the music editorial department at Territorial Headquarters. What is it like, and
2: what's the responsibilities in your role there? I've worked in music editorial for the last 19 years, and it's a job I really love. Although since COVID, I've actually been working in my garden more than I have been at THQ. My job title is Senior Music Editor. And so along with my two colleagues, I proofread all the music that we produce in our territory for SPNS. It's a real privilege to work in Music Editorial. And I'm really fortunate to be able to have a job that I'm so passionate about.
0: Excellent and you said that you work in your garden I should probably just explain to listeners that you're not just sat out on a deck chair you do have what's known as environmentally friendly
2: work environment also known as a shed that you work from. Yeah also I'm not a gardener I'd like to point that out that's not my (laughs) my new job.
0: Well you never know when you might need to dig up some old schools or something. (laughs) Excellent stuff. And as well, another one of your responsibilities for music editorial that you've sort of been lumbered with,
2: perhaps, is editing Fully Scored. Have you been enjoying that role? Matthew, I'm your biggest fan. I've listened to every word you've said on this podcast, many more than any of the listeners have listened to. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's uh, not something I came into with much, with any experience of, uh, but something that I've really enjoyed doing, developed new skills, and it's a pleasure to work alongside somebody as enthusiastic, as accomplished as yourself, that may not make the cut. No, no,
0: that's a bit much, <laughs> but very kind.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Do
0: appreciate, really do, sincerely appreciate all the work that you do behind the scenes. I know you put in a lot of hours, because I'm quite rubbish at doing the questions, so you have to do a lot of snipping and cutting and all that. Also, at the moment, you're undertaking something called running the division.
2: Would you be able to explain to our listeners a bit about what it is and uh, why are you doing it? Back in 2020, a year that none of us will ever forget due to COVID lockdowns, uh, right at the end of the year, my sister-in-law, who at the time was aged 42, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She'd had no symptoms and she hadn't been unwell. So this came as a massive shock to all of us. So she immediately started treatment and had her first chemotherapy session on Christmas Eve of that year. During her illness, Macmillan Cancer Support have been very important to her and my brother, and so I wanted to do something to give back to this charity. During lockdown, when we all had too much time on our hands, I wondered how many corps in my division I could run to. I go to Bexley Heath Corps, which is in the South London Division, and there are 30 Salvation Army churches in this area. I realised that if I picked a central starting point, which has been the William Booth College I should be able to run to all 30 core. The furthest is about 22 miles. Um, So that's gonna be a tough one. But so far I've run to 20 of the 30 core and have raised over 5,000 pounds for Macmillan Cancer Support, which is great, but I'd love to raise some more money before I take on the London Marathon, which is my goal at the end of this in October.
0: Fantastic. Of course, we wish you all the best with that um, and for such a worthwhile cause as well. And I'm sure that we'll put some stuff on our fully scored Facebook page for listeners that may want to support you in that venture. Okay. well, sitting in your work shed at the moment on uh, what is being called a UK heatwave, you probably don't feel two million miles away from being on this mythical Arid Island itself. So, Simon Gash, if you had to take one album with you,
2: to an arid island, what would the album be and why? Well, as I said earlier, Matthew, I've put you off for many months now um, just because I couldn't choose one album. Uh, I came up with all sorts of possibilities. time I was thinking about the Winter Masala's Carnival album because that was one I wore out when I was young, wishing I could play cornet solos like Winton, then buying the book and realised I couldn't get close to any of them. Uh, and then I... I thought I'd take a different tact and I thought maybe I could find a double album that I could take because that would give me twice as much listening material. But I couldn't really settle on one of those. Um, And so in the end, as everyone else has gone for manuscripts, that ruled that album out for me as well. But I've gone for Trumpet Call by the ISB. So why is that then? A good choice. Well, I think it's got something for everyone. A couple of marches, rolling along and then the classic Mighty to Save some really quality big pieces. So Heaton's Takata, finished the album, Robert Redhead's Corpus Christi, which is just a fantastic piece of music which I'll never tire of listening to. And in between that, uh, as well as Make His Praise Glorious and a couple of more reflective numbers, we've got the three ISB soloists, probably all playing as well as they've ever played. First of all, uh, David Dawes playing Trumpet Call, which it's a Ken Downey piece, which I think sounds like no other Ken Downey piece. In fact, it took me a while to realize that Trumpet Call was actually by Ken Downey. Then Andrew Justice playing the Samson, which is beautiful. And then finally, uh, my bandmaster, Derek Kane, playing one of the Bearcroft solos written for him, Locomotion. So I think this album will hopefully keep me uh, entertained on those long evenings after the beautiful swim in the sea. Fantastic, Simon. Great choice there, and thank you for talking
0: through your reasoning behind it. Uh, we'll be back in a month's time to pick you up off Arid
2: Island and deliver our next guest. Do I have to edit the podcast from my Arid Island? <laughs> I think you do, yeah. That could, be, that could be tricky.
0: Yeah, you can only edit it using one CD. No laptop.
2: <laughs> and one battery. One <laughs> laptop battery. Could be a short episode. Could
0: just be the sound of a seagull or Well, I hope you have a great stay on the island, Simon. Try not to antagonise the seagulls too much. They can get a little bit nibbly. Now it's time to welcome Gavin Lamplow back as we put him to the test in Bandmastermind. mastermind. Could we have a new leader on the fully scored board? Gavin, welcome back to Fully Scored. It is now time for Band Mastermind. On a scale of uh, 1 to 26, how nervous are you feeling right now?
1: 27.
0: Okay, nice one. And uh, 27, is that what you're hoping to get as well? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, Yeah, you'd be lucky to haven't even got that many questions. (laughs) Excellent stuff. Well, for those that might not know what the band mastermind format is. Uh, Gavin will have 1 minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as he can. So, Gavin Lamplough, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am. Then your time starts now. How many of Eric Ball's pieces are published in the American Band Journal? Five. Uh, Good guess, but not quite. Two of Australia's band journals are named after prestigious Australian composers. Can you name either one of the composers?
1: Arthur Goolidge, Noel Jones.
0: Correct. Norman Odoi was a bandmaster at Montreal Citadel, for whom he wrote the iconic march. But which other Canadian corps was he also bandmaster of, for which he also wrote a march? Pass. Okay. In 1923, Richard Slater was recalled to take temporary charge of the Salvation Army's UK Music Department, having served the role previously for 30 years. At what age was he when he was recalled? Another guess. 60. Not far off. What year did the Judd Street collections start publication?
1: <sighs> Two thousand and... Four?
0: Close, but not quite. From 1986 to 1995, Douglas Court held the position of Divisional Music Director in which US state? Florida. Correct. What nationality is Salvationist composer Brenton Broadstock? Australian. Correct. Who wrote variations on the Pilgrim's Song 309 in the festival series? I don't think it is,
1: but Tom Rive.
0: Correct. The March... Milestone by William Himes was written to commemorate the 75th anniversary. Well, your time is up, but I'll continue the question. The March Milestone by William Himes was written to commemorate the 75th anniversary of which band?
1: Enfield Citadel.
0: Incorrect, ah. I'm afraid. So that gives you a grand total of four, which is pretty good for Bandmastermind. I'll just go through the answers of the ones that you didn't quite get correctly. So, I asked how many of Eric Ball's pieces are published in the American Band Journal. It's just one, uh, which is in Pastures Green, number 91, for the hmm. band nerds out there. Um, Norman Ledois, who wrote Montreal Citadel when he was bandmaster there, also wrote the March Earl's Court Citadel when he was bandmaster there, now York Minster Citadel. In 1923, Richard Slater was recalled to take temporary charge of the music department for the UK for the Salvation Army he was 69 when he was recalled and the Judd Street collection started publication in 2006 March to be precise um, and the final question we didn't quite get uh, was the March milestone by William Himes was written to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Chicago Staff Band okay. so there we go how are you feeling on the scale of 1 to 26 now we're finished Oh, one. great <laughs> yeah. excellent stuff Thank you again, Gavin, for giving up your time, your
1: words, really do appreciate it. Great pleasure, and uh, keep up the great work. You're all doing a fabulous job with this, and this podcast is uh, uniting uh, brass musicians in the Salvation Army across the globe, and uh, it's a really great thing you're doing, so congratulations. Thank you.
0: Commiserations there, Gavin. Some very tricky questions there, indeed. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode but we've got an exciting episode 33 coming next month. Keep your eyes peeled on our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages for more details. Don't forget, if you have enjoyed this episode, you can always leave us a rating and a review. Or alternatively, let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear in future episodes. Before this podcast reaches its final destination, it's time for a few thanks. Thank you first of all to our brilliant guests Gavin, John and Simon for giving up your time to prepare and record with us. Thank you to our producer Simon Gash for all the time spent editing and choosing your Arid Island album choice. Neither an easy task. Thank you to the social enigmas that are the elusive bad nerds for secretly supplying the bandmastermind trivia. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting our podcast and putting together a complementing playlist of pieces relating to our guests, analysis, and Arid Island album pick. And finally, thank you to our attentive listeners. Well done for making it all the way to the end. Now, go ahead and give yourself a little pat on the back. If you're listening public, people will probably think you're a little bit weird now, but hey, roll with it and absolutely own it. I'll see you in our next episode. Goodbye. And God bless.